the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And good morning. I'm Gary Randall. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's Friday, July the 16th, 2021, in the year of our Lord. Today on July 16, 1790, a site along the Potomac River was designated the permanent seat of the United States government. That area became known as Washington, D.C., Today in 1882, Mary Todd Lincoln, wife of Abraham Lincoln, she died of a stroke. Today in 1945, the United States exploded its first experimental atomic bomb in New Mexico. On that same day, today in 1945, the heavy cruiser USS Indianapolis left Marais Island, it's a naval shipyard in California, on a secret mission to deliver atomic bomb components to Tinian Island in the Marianas. We know the rest of that story. Today, in 1964, as he accepted the Republican presidential nomination in San Francisco, Barry Goldwater declared that, quote, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, and that, quote, moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. Today, in 1969, Apollo 11 blasted off from Cape Kennedy on the first manned mission to the surface of the moon. Today, in 1980, Ronald Reagan won the Republican presidential nomination at the party's convention in Detroit. Today, in 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr., his wife, Carolyn, and her sister, Lorraine Bessette, they died when their single-engine plane, piloted by Kennedy, as you will recall, plunged into the Atlantic Ocean near Martha's Vineyard. Today, in 2004, Martha Stewart, was sentenced to five months in prison, five months of home confinement by a federal judge in New York for lying about a stock sale. Five years ago today, Donald Trump formally introduced his running mate, Mike Pence. He said he's our favorite guy of all the people we've considered. Mike Pence. China and the United States both celebrated an important anniversary earlier this month. Both countries responded very differently. However, the ruling Chinese Communist Party and the U.S. Democratic Party are in lockstep on one thing, revising history. I want to talk to you a little bit about revising history today in the context of Chinese Communism and American Republicanism. Not We're not a democracy. We're told that incessantly, day in and day out. The media is always calling this a democracy. We're not a democracy. We're a republic. And there is a difference. They know it. That's why they call us a democracy. At a celebration for the 100-year anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party on July 1, Chinese President Xi Jinping, he delivered a speech praising the party and China's increasing role in global affairs. They are indeed putting their tentacles out all around the world, from our own educational campuses in America to Cuba, 
to wherever. Xi said the party state was committed to defending China's national sovereignty and national security, emphasizing the need of a one-party rule and the supremacy of the Communist Party, not unlike some of the sentiments of the left in America today, not communism necessarily, but a one-party rule. He said the Chinese people will absolutely not allow any foreign force to bully, oppress, or enslave us, and anyone who attempts to do so will face broken heads and bloodshed in front of the Iron Great Wall of the 1.4 billion Chinese people. The South China Morning Post, Chinese government is, they said the Chinese government is eager to combat the so-called historical nihilism. Well, that caught my attention the other day, and I've been looking into it. Historical nihilism in the institutions and on the Internet in that context, it has to do, it refers to the discussion or the research that challenges the party state's official version of history. In other words, they are writing their own history now, and it isn't what happened 6,000 years ago in this or that dynasty, but it's about what we say it is. They're rewriting history. And they have a term, historical nihilism, that identifies or it describes how they're responding to people who say, no, 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 that's not our, our history. Our history is different. There was this dynasty in the case of China, and that dynasty, and they did this, they did that, and so on. They have this long history. They've been around a long time as a nation, as you know. But anyone who disagrees with that falls into this category of historical nihilism, and they need to be dealt with. So anyone who disagrees becomes flagged as a problem. This is a core tenet of the Chinese government's ideology. They call it the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. Those are their words. The idea is to blend party-oriented patriotism with socialist development in order to achieve the so-called China dream, a dream of prosperity at home and strength abroad. This form of nationalism is rooted in historical revisionism. And this is where the United States and China are walking in lockstep. They're side by side. They're buddies. <laughs> We're buddies in that respect. We celebrated on July 4th, 245 years of freedom, liberty, and prosperity in the United States. Well, at least some of us did. As we celebrated our 245th anniversary of our nation's independence on July 4th, there were a number of elected Democrats, I mean a lot of them, and corporate media figures who have made billions of dollars off We the People. They spent their 4th of July attacking the American founding. If they would have done that in China, about China, we would have probably never heard from them again. Maybe that would, no, I'm kidding. It wouldn't matter if the left was not in power in America, but they are. And that's why this is important. If this were just some people out there on the periphery of our society hating America, there have always been those people. Even back in the run-up to the 
Revolutionary War. There were people who were hated America. They didn't like these rebels and these people that wanted to declare our independence from England, from the king, and so on. They didn't. They didn't support that at all. There were a lot of people in America that didn't support the American Revolution, but they weren't in power. That's the difference. Today they are, and that makes a lot of difference. Democratic Missouri Representative Cori Bush, she was complaining all over the place. I don't think she. I don't think she cooked, barbecued one hamburger on the Fourth of July or hot dog. She spent her day on Twitter. I read some of the stuff she was writing. She said the U.S. She said, "What are we celebrating? The U.S. was founded on stolen land, and black people still aren't free." She's black. Democratic California Representative Maxine Waters, she tweeted on the 4th of July. She said, quote, July 4th, and so the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal. Equal to what? What men? Only white men? Isn't it something that they wrote this in 1776 when African Americans were enslaved? They weren't thinking about us then, but we're thinking about us now. These are not just people with the right to speak their minds. These are people that are running our government today. They are in power. Phil Kennicott, he wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post, and the Washington Post was probably super hyper excited to publish it, was slamming the 4th of July and the Statue of Liberty. Kennicott is an art critic in, I think it's New York or D.C. I think it's I think he's in New York. He writes a lot. He likes himself. And um, he's always coming from a very negative position regarding America. But anyway, he wrote this op-ed, Washington Post. They put it out there. They featured it, in fact. In it, he he was suggesting in his op-ed that the Statue of Liberty, about the Statue of Liberty, he said, quote, maybe it's time to admit that the Statue of Liberty has never quite measured up. He called it ambiguous and ambivalent and a symbol of hypocrisy or unfulfilled promises. NPR called the Declaration of Independence a document with flaws and deeply ingrained hypocrisies. Well, in my view, that could also define NPR, but that isn't the point today. It occurs to us ordinary people out here that... (coughs) Should these folks be expressing themselves in this way in many other so-called better countries like China and Cuba and so on, the outcome would be dramatically different. If they if they would have done this on July 1st in China, instead of the no consequences that we have in our country, officials would have been showing up at their door. And you know that's right. We all do. Cuba is a current example of what the absence of freedom actually looks like. And that's where these people that are in power today in America are trying to take this nation. They won't admit it. Maybe they don't even understand it. But that's where they're trying to take us. Cuba is an example of what the absence of freedom looks like. Independent media is confirming that at least 5,000, and that was four days ago, have been made, uh, arrests have been made since Sunday when Cubans spilled into the streets. Thousands of Cuban dissidents marched Sunday against the repressive communist tyranny. This isn't a rarity. It's a common sight among protesters for freedom worldwide. 
They were carrying the flag of the United States because that symbolizes freedom to them. And I may talk more about that one of these days soon because it's bothersome to me that while it is a symbol of freedom to so many, it has been turned into a symbol of oppression by those with an agenda that is not in the best interest of America or the people who live here. They have divided America into two classes. One is the oppressed, the other the oppressor. And you will fall into one of those classes because they will categorize you as one or the other. You are either oppressed or you are oppressing. And if you seem to be getting along okay and doing okay, paying your bills and feeding your family and doing the stuff that ordinary people do, you're one of the oppressors. That's sad, but it's true. A Catholic priest was publicly beaten and dragged around the streets of Havana this past week, about, I think it was Monday, because he questioned government policy. He disappeared. The people were so outraged, they finally brought him back. He was all beaten up and black and blue, and they released him on the streets after the people, the outrage was such that the communist regime there in Cuba, such as it is, decided that they should put him back on the street. Didn't work out well for them. But it's interesting how some of our people in America, our leaders, elected officials who are leftists, are responding even to Cuba, much less their criticisms of the United States. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know her, AOC, she came out with a statement yesterday afternoon. She's blaming the absurdly cruel U.S. embargo on Cuba for the nation's turmoil. She said Trump, I'm quoting her, Trump-era restrictions on the socialist state is driving the unrest. She's a leader in America. We can dismiss her, but she has power. And she has influence. She has six or seven or ten million, whatever it is, following her on social media. So it's Donald Trump's fault that Cuba is collapsing on itself. She said the repressive Havana regime was not the only cause of the island nation's troubles. She said we must also name a U.S. contribution to Cuban suffering, our 60-year-old embargo. So it really wasn't Trump's, but she says it is. I didn't know Trump was in office for 60 years. Maybe, maybe I missed something there. But she said our 60-year-old embargo... She said last month, once again, the U.N. voted overwhelmingly to call on the United States to lift its embargo on Cuba. The embargo is absurdly cruel, and like too many other U.S. policies targeting Latin Americans, the cruelty is the point. I outright reject the Biden administration's defense of the embargo, she says. She wants Cuba to get the money directly to the government from America. If you look at the stats, and I don't have time to get into this today, but a lot, except to mention it, and you're going to hear this, and you may have already, you're going to hear that how America, this embargo America doesn't give Cuba any money. If you look at the list, of the stats on government websites, and I have a lot of them, um, you'll see all these nations listed. That's kind of a, an awakening experience to see how much money we give to how many nations and to whom we give it. I mean, it's a little chilly, to be honest. But Cuba's not on the list. 
And the reason they're not on the list is because we do give them money and aid. But we do not give it to the communist government because the communist government says, thank you, this is for the people, and they put it in their pocket. I mean, that's what communists do. And that's what Cuba has been doing. Castro brothers have been doing that their whole life. I mean, that's the deal. So America has found, United States has found other ways to help the people in Cuba without enhancing or funding the Communist Party. Ocasio-Cortez knows that. So does Bernie Sanders. And so do all the rest of these people that are way on the left, but they're elected officials. They know that, but they won't say it. And they infer to the people who are uninformed that, well, we've cut them off and we're, we're... We're causing this. It's America's fault. It's always America's fault. It's always the fault of the United States with these people. Her response mirrors the Black Lives Matter response. Black Lives Matter, they came out. They were founded by Marxists, those two women that started Black Lives Matter. They, I mean, they admittedly say they, were trained, they are trained Marxists. They responded to the crisis in Cuba by blaming the United States a couple of days ago for the suffering that the Cuban people have endured at the hands of the island's communist dictatorship. It's about the communism. It's not about the United States. But they make it about the United States because they don't like America. They hate America as it is. Black Lives Matter condemns, they said in a statement, I'm quoting them, Black Lives Matter condemns the U.S. federal government's inhumane treatment of Cubans and urges it to immediately lift the economic embargo. This cruel and inhumane policy instituted with the explicit intention of destabilizing the country and undermining Cubans' right to choose their own government, they've never had that right. They got to vote, but who cares? Like Lenin said, it's not, I mean, let people vote. Voting doesn't elect people. The people who count the votes elect the people. That's a mantra for communism and socialism. Black Lives Matter says since 1962, the United States has forced pain and suffering on the people of Cuba by cutting off food, medical supplies, and costing the tiny island nation an estimated $130 billion. Since 1962, the United States, I can tell you for sure, Rubio, Senator Rubio and some of these guys who is, is Cuban, and some of these guys are well-informed, and they're out there saying this, but the mainstream media won't report it. America has been helping the people in Cuba, but we have not been helping the government. And God bless the people who have been making that decision. Without that money, Black Lives Matter says it's harder for Cuba to acquire medical equipment needed to develop its own COVID-19 vaccines and on and on and on. That simply is a lie. And the mainstream media, your ABC, NBC, and CBS, and CNN, and all those guys, they're, they're complicit in the lie because they don't say that. They know better, and they, they're afraid they could get sued. But these left-wing elected officials, public servants, they know they can get away with it, and they keep saying it. America has been helping the Cuban people. And we've been sending medical supplies, I mean, endlessly to the people, but going around the government. And so these people take that license to mislead America and mislead the people in our country. But that's the end result of communism. 
It happens every time. There is not an exception. There is not one exception in history where communism has succeeded. And it won't in China. It ultimately is doomed from the get-go. But in the meantime, it gives power to power-hungry people, whether it's the Chinese Communist Party today, Cuba of the past, it looks like it's coming unraveled, Hitler, I mean, we know their names. That's what this is about. China and America are very different. But the two countries are in lockstep regarding one thing, and that is fundamental to what these countries, what this, our country, has become and what China will become and what Cuba has become and Venezuela and others. There's a contrast between the Chinese Communist Party and the Democrats. It shows how the two parties are attempting to rewrite history, although in very different ways. I mean, there's a contrast in what they're up to, but it's the same path. They're walking in lockstep. The Communist Party's historical revision is a nationalist attempt to promote one-party rule at home. I mean, that's what we're seeing with the Democrats now. All of the people that are astute and follow political, you know, things every day, we talk about them, but I'm not a pundit. I'm an ordained minister. Maybe that makes me a pundit for God. I don't know. But the people that follow this, I mean, day in and day out, the politics, they say that the whole thing that the Democratic Party is doing now, pushing the nation towards socialism, toward the left, extremely so, really has to do with creating a one-party system. I agree. Everything I've seen supports that. The, the Democrats' revision, on the other hand, of history is a anti-national attempt to reorient the founding of the U.S. history around the injustices of slavery. And, of course, to the gay community and others are attached to that as well. Democrats and left-wing activists are already promoting this version of U.S. history through their endeavors like the 1619 Project. That's why I talk about that on this program. We've got to understand this is not just something that's out there. It's a very purposeful part of a bigger agenda. I'm not talking about conspiracy theory. I'm talking about what's happening right in front of our eyes if we turn on the lights. And the teaching of critical race theory, CRT, in public schools and other institutions. This is part of that process to take America down the same path that Cuba has gone down. I'm not comparing us to Cuba at all. I mean, America and Cuba are quite different. But that is the path that this administration, that's why people say to me sometimes, Gary, you've been a pastor and you've been a minister your whole life. How did you get so involved in politics? My response to that is I'm not involved in politics. I have never run for office. I don't intend to run for office unless God would tell me to do so in my heart, and he hasn't. I kind of wanted him to at one point in my life. Honestly, I kind of prayed and said, Lord, are you sure you? this is what I should not do? I kind of wanted to. I mean, it would have been, I could have seen it as a ministry, but God didn't see it that way. And, and He, I felt checked in my heart, and so we didn't do it. But I'm not in politics. I'm simply looking at this first and foremost through a biblical lens, 
the truth of God's word. As we see all of these things out there called truth swirling and changing and evolving. And then we see in the midst of that, people grasping the opportunity of a crisis, as they say, trying to push an agenda that ultimately is destructive. It's not only anti-American and anti-freedom, it's anti-God and anti-Bible. It's the antithesis of equality. It claims to be the path to anti-racism, when in fact it's the path to end merit, objective truth, and the adoption the adoption of race-based policies. That's where this leads. Even the liberal UCLA College of Social Science, even that college of UCLA, in their introduction, recognizes the importance of accurate history. Here's what they say in their introduction. UCLA, of all places, knowledge of history is the precondition of political intelligence. Without history, a society shares no common memory or where it has been, what its core values are, or what decisions of the past account for current circumstances. Without history, we cannot undertake any sensible inquiry into the political, social, or moral issues of our society. That lays bare the motivation behind the party in power in the United States and elsewhere, China and elsewhere. The leftists are obsessed with dismantling America. They don't want any, none, sensible inquiry. That sounds more like China than America to me. And yet, if you stand up today and take any position, as I do, against critical race theory, the gay agenda, abortion, it doesn't matter what it is. If you take a position against it, you are targeted as an oppressor. You're part of the problem. You're not expressing your freedom of speech. You're disrupting what's happening and where we're going on this ride. It's interesting but it's not new. It's been around a long time. And if we don't have the Bible as our, as our anchor, we have nothing. And that's where these people are trying to take us today. And that's why I am all in on getting the right people elected as public servants, politicians, and the wrong people out of office. And no, I'm not involved in politics per se. But that is the righteous thing to do, and we've got to start doing it. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Now all these things happen to them for examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. The things that have been recorded in God's word and elsewhere, those things God has preserved for us so that we will know and that is, that is not lost on history itself, but he's talking about the word of God here. For whatsoever things were written, he told the Romans, aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of scriptures might have hope. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. That's kind of where we are today in America. God is in control, but he's calling on us to be informed and to be engaged. Thank you for standing with me in this ministry. Thank you for your support. We need it. Box 399, Bellevue, Washington, 98009. 
Box 399, Bellevue, Washington, 98009. Have a great weekend. I'll see you Monday.